Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 28, Racial Inequities in Healthcare. My guest, Susan Rogers, MD, is the President-Elect of Physicians for a National Health Program. She has recently retired, but continues helping people as a volunteer attending hospitalists and internists at the John H. Stroger Junior Hospital of Cook County. Previously, Dr. Rogers was the co-director of medical student programs for the Department of Medicine at Stroger Hospital. She is also an assistant professor of medicine at Rush University and an assistant professor of medicine at Rosalind Franklin University. She has received numerous teaching awards from Stroger Hospital, Rush University, and Rosalind Franklin University. Dr. Rogers is a member and fellow of the American College of Physicians and a member of the Society of General Internal Medicine and the National Medical Association. Dr. Susan Rogers, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Well, thanks very much for having me today. So I'd like to start by asking what's the difference between health inequities and health disparities? Because I often view these as the same thing, and I don't think they are. So could you please explain that? No, actually, they're not the same. Uh, disparities are differences in the health between populations, between racial groups, socioeconomic status, and they are linked to some social issues, but they're just disparities or differences, whereas inequities are unnecessary differences. That is, they stem from avoidable and unfair and unjust reasons, and it implies that there is a ethical dimension to that and that they, they shouldn't be there. There will always be disparities because of differences that we can't do anything about. Inequities, we can address. We can uh, change those. And with that, is the U.S. health system plagued with inequity? Oh, definitely, definitely so. And it stems for years and years. I mean, even if uh, you look back in slavery, the way that they looked at the health of slaves was totally different. But where we are now, really to understand the inequities that we have now, we have to look at how we got here. And if you look at some of the policies that the government has done that created the the segregation that's in this country, really created most of the inequities that are here. The fact that you have such marked segregation in this in this country with different access to a lot of resources, in environmental differences, lack of jobs, social services. And these were all done because of federal policies. It's not that black people just decided to live in ghettos. That was the only place where they could live. And that was by law, federal government, you couldn't get a mortgage and 
uh, Chicago even because, you know, it, because of redlining. And so black people had to live where they could live. And so that, that really affects some of the, uh, access to, to things that people need like healthcare. And it's because of this structural racism that exists in this country that we have these inequities of healthcare. Well, you said the structural racism. How did the Civil Rights Act affect that in 64 and 65? Did it help? Oh, yes, it did help. Um, there were things that changed. I mean, even the uh, the Supreme Court decision about uh, education, you know, that addressed the separate but equal, supposedly equal educational system in the South, you know, dismantled that. But as we can see, that schools are still segregated. In fact, they're even more segregated in the North now. And so the Civil Rights Act did a lot. It eliminated the redlining. People could buy wherever they wanted. Voting rights, all of that helped. But they didn't eliminate it all. And even now, the present administration is whittling away at a lot of these rights. The voters' rights, for example, is now that no one's looking and they decrease the federal oversight, they're doing what they want, and that is, you know, disenfranchising voters. But um, it's that the Civil Rights Act did do a lot. And even uh, the desegregation of hospitals didn't happen until in the 60s when Medicare and Social Security came out. And then when Medicare came out, Johnson said, these hospitals cannot get federal money unless they desegregate. And up until then, black physicians couldn't be in the AMA. They couldn't get on staff at hospitals. They couldn't do uh, fellowships to specialize. So this did open the door. Uh, so a lot has changed. There have been a lot of differences to sort of address these inequities, but they still have to be in People aren't doing things necessarily because it's the right thing to do. They're doing it because there's some statutes and federal policies that are requiring them to do that. Well, one of my questions now, Medicare is a program that's run by the federal government, generally on a national level. But Medicaid, at least, is generally run by the states. Have you found that with Medicaid, because it's run by the states, there are differences in what goes on from state to state and how minorities get treated on Medicaid? Definitely. Um, even before the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion, when you say Medicaid is a federal program, yes, the federal government supplies states with money, and then the state decides how to spend that money. So each state has different benefits, different factors that decide who can get Medicaid or not. They now come out with, you need to work to get Medicaid. So the state decides the benefits. And the way it has been is that no matter how much the state spent, the federal government would reimburse that money. It really wasn't a federal program. It was just federally funded, but the state decided the benefits. What happened with Medicaid expansion was that now the states didn't have to put in any of their money so that it was all federal dollars into the Medicaid fund. And then several states, though, 
14 decided not to expand Medicaid and rather than take this essentially free gift from the federal government to fund Medicaid in their state, they said, oh, no, we don't want this. They had a lot of reasons saying that in the end it would cost us more, da-da-da. But they still, still, it was the state that decided who got what with Medicaid. So the benefits differ all over the country. You can be in a state right next, you know, I'm in Illinois. Indiana has totally different benefits than what Illinois does. Yes, which was probably implemented under Mike Pence, now the vice president. <laughs> so yeah, some are much, much less generous than others. Yes. Much, much less, yes. Mike Pence, who said taking away food assistance will ennoble people. I know. I don't get the thinking. But one of the things that I think really affected negatively on minorities was the lack of expansion in Medicaid in those states that didn't expand it, most of which were in the South. And knowing that half the black population in this country lives in the South and that a lot of the black population there is poor, they did not benefit at all from Medicaid expansion. So those states actually worsened their disparities because the Medicaid expansion didn't improve care for blacks that lived in the South. However, the Medicaid expansion did improve the benefits for those that lived in the states that took expansion. Do you think that the states in the South that have large minority populations, and particularly African-American populations, do you think that they didn't expand Medicaid because they didn't want to help minorities and African-Americans? Oh, I think that had a lot to do with it. That had a lot to do with it. And I think, unfortunately, what people don't seem to realize is that it's to everyone's benefit that everyone is healthy and that when you negatively impact one group, you're actually negatively impacting the whole group. And I think that the policies don't reflect that and that they would rather disenfranchise a whole group thinking the rest will be okay, but they're not. It's to everyone's benefit that everyone is healthy. If you have a business, you want your workers to be able to stay healthy so that they can continue to go to work. You want workers to be able to work so that they can pay taxes into your system. You never know what you're uh, negating by not allowing people opportunities. They don't have the opportunity to develop. So it's important that the whole health, the whole state is healthy. And by, like I say, disenfranchising one group also negatively impacts the other group. I think sometimes we, we don't think about this, but if you look and you think about how the Disabilities Act affected those with disabilities, I wonder how many people think about that when they walk through a door that automatically opens. That was all because of the Disabilities Act that we all benefit from. And so we have to get under the out of the notion that not helping one group has no effect on everybody else, because it does. Well, I certainly agree with that. But could you cite a few statistics? to show how the inequities manifest themselves? Well, if you look at just common medical conditions like heart failure, kidney disease, stroke, um, 
the medical prevention that would do that would make a big difference in the life expectancy of black people. About 86% of the difference in life expectancy comes from medical prevention that they're not able to take access to. If we look at um, the maternal mortality in this country, it's phenomenal. It's For uh, black women, it's 300 times as much the mortality rate as white women, and a lot of this is due to poor access to care, just stressors of being black in this country, the unequal pressure that gets put on women because of having to deal with the housing and all the other issues in life and being pregnant, those inordinately affect minority women. So there's a lot of data out there that shows that not expanding care really impacts life our mortality. I mean, the life expectancy of blacks is about six years younger. And an interesting statistic, though, when we talk about numbers, if you look at a black man in the South now has the life mortality that a white man had in 1960. That's a despicable number. When you wrap your arms around that, I mean, that, you know, 60 years ago, a white man was living as long as a black man is now. Just a quick point. You said that for black women, their maternal mortality rate is 300 times the maternal mortality rate of white women. Is it 300 times or 300%? It's 300%. 300%. That's correct. So it's about three times as high. Yeah. So, we have these problems. What is the solution? Well, for me, a big part of the solution is Medicare for All, because one of the ways to address these health inequities is for everyone to have access to care. There's no question that getting care will improve lives. It will decrease mortality. The statistics show it, that even with now under the Affordable Care Act, that those who had the benefit of Medicaid expansion or the ability to get insurance through the health exchange and through the Affordable Care Act, they had improved health. They were able to get things treated that are easily treatable. They would get the care that they would need when urgent uh, things came up. They were able to access care. Now, Medicare for All will not eliminate all health inequities. There's no question about that because there's so many other things involved that I've talked about that address these inequities. But Medicare for All, I think, is one of the first things that we need to address because we have to be able to have people have access to care because there's no question that everybody at some point in their life needs medical care. And there's no question that there's a lot of things that could be done to fix those problems if you have the access to it. And not only access, but being able to get care without having to worry about the financial burden. Exactly. And the other thing, too, that Medicare for All would do is that it would provide facilities in areas of need versus facilities where they can make money. Right now, you've got inner-city hospitals that are closing because they can't afford to stay open. Any hospital or healthcare facility that is totally funded by Medicare or Medicaid 
often cannot stay financially solvent because though the reimbursement rates for those are not even covering the cost. So when you have neighborhoods where most of the, the inhabitants have Medicaid or Medicare, they can't support a community hospital there. So that those hospitals are closing, it's the same problem in rural areas. So geography makes a difference. If with Medicare for All, there would be access geographically that people could get to. Knowing people in low socioeconomic status and in poverty neighborhoods have more difficulties with transportation. And that when you have these facilities in their geographic area, it's easier to access. And it would even out the field. You wouldn't have five major hospitals within a five-mile radius, and then five miles away, you have absolutely nothing. So that would have to change so that everybody could get access. So there's a lot that Medicare for All would do to help address some of the inequities in other areas. Well, obviously, it would help. But since, unfortunately, we're not going to have Medicare for All right away, as much as I wish that would happen. Is there anything that we can do now to address health inequities? Well, there's several things we could do. One is I think we need to support the Affordable Care Act. Right now, it's become more difficult for people to get on the exchange. They've decreased funding for people on those lines to help people who are searching. It's a very difficult site to maneuver and navigate through. I don't know if you've been on it, but it's very difficult to get through so that not only is it harder to get care under the Affordable Care Act, the benefits have been limited. The Affordable Care Act, which mandated certain benefits that had to be covered, have been sort of taken away. So now there's policies that actually offer almost nothing, but they're just like predators off of people buying their insurance who aren't giving them the benefits. So I think it's really important that we continue our efforts to at least maintain the Medicaid expansion and further expand it to those states that didn't take it, that we continue trying to keep the benefits that the Affordable Care Act has. Since that's the only avenue that we have for a lot of people in this country, we have to maintain those benefits for them. The other thing is the pre-existing conditions. We have to make sure that we keep that because if people lose that, you're just condemning them to no care at all for whatever is wrong. And to me, that's just unconscionable. So along with the efforts to promote Medicare for all, I think in the meantime, until we get there, we have to at least support um, the Affordable Care Act and the benefits that they have. It still does not eliminate the financial barrier to care, though, and that's a big, big problem that's still going to get there. That is one of the biggest things that Medicare for All will eliminate is the financial barrier to care. Regarding removing financial barriers to care, I would like to touch on that. Do you think that Medicare for All would help minorities economically? Yes, I think so, in the sense that if hospitals were in poor communities, which where many of them have unfortunately closed, that would help employ the people who live in that community. Throughout the country, a lot of community hospitals are major employers of that surrounding community especially in rural communities, it's often the major employer 
uh, for that rural community. And so when that hospital closes, the whole area gets more blighted because you don't have areas that people can get to to go to work and that it ends up sustaining the neighborhood. In a sense, everybody is healthier and they're socioeconomically better because what happens now under this, you know, privately financed for-profit system is that facilities are built where they can make money and not where they're needed. And unless we do something to drastically change that, we will continue this whole loss of healthcare facilities in poor neighborhoods. And that what happens is that not only do the poor in this country get less, but the rich get even more than they need. And it's just Morally wrong. Well, one of the things you mentioned is closing of hospitals. But there's also been a consolidation of both doctor's offices and hospitals. Does that have an effect on minority populations? Yes, because now it's the, the doctor is no longer in control of the health care that they provide that they become an employee of a corporation. And these corporations are just out there to make money. Part of the problem, too, is that they have no real sense of community obligation because there's so many multiple payers that they're really not investing in the community. They're investing in their corporation. And it just doesn't do the community good. Looking at an institution like the Cleveland Clinic, which is a state-of-the-art medical facility, they attract people from all over the world. People fly in to come to the Cleveland Clinic for health care, and they often pay cash. So that's the clientele that they're catering to. Clearly, they do, you know, excellent medical care and health care. That's not the issue. But the problem is that they are surrounded by a community that has some of the worst statistics in the state. Their life expectancy is less. They're, they die early from diabetes and hypertension, all of which are treatable. Their community is just a desert in terms of resources. They're not able to often have their care done at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm not sure if they uh, enacted this as official policy, but I did read where the CEO had said that they would place Medicaid paying patients at the bottom of the list of people who needed services and the cash-paying patients would be at the top. So this is an institution that is making money but has no sense of obligation to their surrounding community. So they're really not invested in improving health. They're invested in providing health care. And it's institutions like this that are fat that will continue to get fatter. And other hospitals that are, you know, maybe performing very efficiently with minimal resources end up closing because their payer mix does not cover the services that they provide. So it's survival of the fattest, not the fittest. Uh, you know, I keep hearing these things and I just keep getting shocked and disgusted by them. Um, <laughs> it's awful. We have an awful system here. Well, yes, we do. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? I read a comment that 
you know, I thought was, I wasn't sure how to get it in, but, you know, how I had mentioned that we put resources where they're needed and, you know, Medicare for all globally budgets. And we often compare it to how fire departments are budgeted. You have a global budget and the fire department decides where its fire stations go. And they would never close a fire station because there's too many fires or because the people are too sick. You know, they never build a fire station across the street from one that's already there. But that's exactly what we do with healthcare facilities. Well, yes. And in fact, I had a podcast on how the funding of fire departments is a great analogy for how we're handling healthcare. And I think that's a great. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point that we wouldn't have two fire stations across the street from each other because it's not necessary. Exactly. And the idea that if everybody's healthy, we all benefit. Just like I want my neighbor's house to have their fire put down, regardless of their money. You know, because if their house burns, my house may burn. We all benefit. Yes, that's exactly right. We are all in this together. Dr. Susan Rogers, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.